Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. This is the Built in Texas series. Uh, with me on the line is the founder and CEO of Born.com, uh, Jonathan Trimble. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. Uh, yeah, the privilege is all mine. So, um, you spent a lot of time at the FBI. <laughs> which is a key thing to land for everybody uh, because you're in the cybersecurity space. So um, walk us through a bit about your background, if you would, Jonathan, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, so I uh, was with the FBI for 24 years, did a full career there, uh, joined up as a special agent, uh, went through special agent training in Quantico and um, did the kind of typical special agent things, uh, investigating both uh, criminal uh, organized crime and then some national security matters um, and then went into management about midpoint through my career. Um, always gravitated towards technology and, and how to use it better for the Bureau. And uh, I think that's one of the things where I made an impact on the Bureau was being able to help us do things better using technology, uh, whether it's analyzing information or, or uh, storing it. Uh, that was one of the things that I, I uh, got the most satisfaction of when I was working with the FBI. Okay. Um, and what did that experience uh, teach you? Because I suppose, you know, going into the space that you've gone into, it, it, you obviously saw things happening on a day-to-day -day basis um, that you were like, hey, this is a real problem. Um, and I think I should be, you know, going out there and building a startup to go and solve these, uh, this issue. So, so what did you see um, that got your mind all excited about, you know, leaving the FBI and going out and solving this on your terms? Well, uh, I think uh, having an engineering background, there's always that tendency to say, to see, you know, how can we do things better and how can we, you know, improve these processes? Uh, an example is, you know, after 9-11, we uh, really shifted a lot from uh, investigating criminal matters to national security. There's a lot more emphasis on that side and uh, doing analysis and trying to prevent attacks as opposed to just responding to them. And so we uh, hired a, you know, a large cadre of intelligence analysts, gave them a lot of training, uh, but they didn't have the tools to do all the, uh, sort through all the information that they had. And so that was one of the projects that uh, I, I worked on and, and led was uh, developing an analytical platform that would bring in all this information together and allow the analysts to look at it in, in different ways. And so it's kind of moving towards that predictive analytics where, you, you know, by pulling in these different um, uh, data feeds and applying some technology, we could kind of predict, okay, we see some patterns here and we get more uh, intelligence led as opposed to being reactive. And so that was uh, uh, really a complex effort. Uh, a lot of times when you're developing technology, you have to get the cooperation and develop a constituency of people to support it. And sometimes that would be an, a challenge in a large organization. So it's kind of acting as an entrepreneur uh, within the, the organization several times where I saw a problem, uh, try to get some believers in it and develop, uh, you know, people to kind of drive this project forward. Mm -hmm. um, and when you were at the FBI in the context of cybersecurity, what did you say are like some regional hotbeds or uh, countries where they're, let's just say, leading in terms of cyber crime sophistication, if you like? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we see cybercrime across the globe. It's everywhere. Um, and, and depending on what kind of uh, cyber attacks you're talking about, um, we'll... Uh, 
the different countries kind of lead the way in, in those areas. Like Russia has always been very sophisticated in, in their hacking techniques and, and are you know exceptionally good at that. Um, China has a major um, hacking effort as well, where they just have a large cadre of people supporting them. Um, and so any type of intellectual property that's out there, they've been known to uh, uh, grab that information and bring it back over to China and, and use it that way. Um, also in uh, Africa, uh, Nigerians uh, are very sophisticated as far as their fraud schemes. Um, and uh, in Eastern Europe, we see a lot of uh, organized crime uh, where they were also very sophisticated. They use a lot of the techniques that they learned from uh, Russia as far as the, the old Russian intelligence services, uh, uh, very sophisticated the way they developed their criminal organizations and then combine that with hacking. And they're in the uh, business of making money. And so they'll keep at the, these um, hacking activities like ransomware um, just to make uh, to, uh, to make a profit and, and uh, collect money for their criminal organization. And Jonathan, what is like the number one threat to a business? So if, if you know if you start up, for instance, or maybe you have five thousand employees, what's top of the list uh, from your experience in terms of cybercrime? I, I would say that the ransomware is the number one threat that uh, businesses should be concerned with. It, it's almost like a triple threat because we rely on computers to do our, our daily business operations. So if you can imagine. Um, any business, if you can't access your data, can't turn on your terminal, work stops. And um, it can take some time to get that, that system back up and, and start up again. And so the average time for, for a work stoppage with a ransomware event that takes hold uh, is over three weeks. And so you can imagine the cost of that uh, if your entire workforce is not working effectively. Um, the other thing, too, is Ransomware often will um, not only lock up the data and make it not available, they'll extract that data and then um, hold that, that data hostage as well, where if you don't pay us, we're going to release all your customer information on the dark web, which causes another uh, form of headache. Um, and then sometimes the uh, criminals will approach other customers or other organizations that also have that um, interest in that data saying, we stole this information from your law firm example. We want to ransom from you as well. So there's these different layers of ransoms that they can get through a ransomware event. And so it can be very costly for a business, not only in terms of just making the payment to the, uh, the criminals, um, also, uh, any kind of class action litigation, remediation costs. Um, about half the cost of a, a ransomware event is, uh, uh lawsuits. Mm. Yeah, when the old days they would, uh, you know, put, <laughs> they would ask you for Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't think that would be such a good idea anymore, <laughs> given what's happened over the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that whole change with the cryptocurrency has kind of thrown that into a bit of a chaos. I know it's crazy. Yeah, don't don't pay me in Bitcoin. Pay me, pay me something else. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Jonathan, how big is this? category here like how big is the market opportunity would you say uh, for born well we are focusing on, on uh, cyber insurance and so uh, our value proposition is determining what the risk is for insurance in a better way using technology to do that um, the u.s market right now for cyber insurance is about five billion dollars globally it's about 12 billion um, but it's expanding over the next uh, seven years, where uh, it has a growth rate of about 25% a year uh, globally. So by uh, 2029, you're looking at um, probably about a $40 billion market. 
So sure. there's room for growth. Yeah. Yeah. Is there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I suppose it's quite an interesting um, uh, conversation for me because I've, you know, I've done quite a few shows around uh, cybersecurity and things. And it seems to me it's like a problem that never goes away. It only gets more sophisticated, which requires more sophisticated tools, more sophisticated technology. Uh, I think Microsoft's uh, 365 alone, it's a threat assessment backbone. It's hitting like it's some ast- per day, like the amount of threats that it is able to pick up on and then obviously push back. So they're, you know, Office 365 or M365 users are not, uh, you know, um, winding up in any kind of trouble. It's like there's, there's, there's like six billion a threat every day across their net. It's like it's so huge, uh, mm-hmm. this, uh, this space and it's becoming more sophisticated. And one of the things that I've learned through having these conversations is that in many cases, it's actually less about the technology and more to do with the people using it. So it's like the, 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 the issue is the employees who look at an email and it's like, Hey, Matt Brown, the CEO, wants you to pay, you know, $100,000 into this account and, and then they, they fake up an invoice and then it gets sent to the procurement team and then they process it because Matt Brown sent the mail and then, you know, and then now there's fraud. So um, it, in many cases, it comes down to the employee using the technology. Um, what are you seeing on the ground in terms of like um, – uh, technology first and we'll get into like some of the other stuff around the trends in terms of the way that technology and tools are being used to circumvent uh, cyber threats. Yeah. You, you touch on an interesting point when you talk about the emails, because you're right, the, the, the uh, level of hacking and the sophistication is just, it continues to skyrocket. And along with that is the technology that prevents attacks. Um, but no matter what kind of technology a, a company has, they can have the best technology in place to protect their, their network. Um, it's still not going to stop everything. And uh, c- cyber criminals know this. They know that, you know, instead of going through the locked front door, which is where all the firewalls are, if they can uh, social engineer an employee to download um, uh, malware or enter their credentials into a fictitious site and use those credentials as an account and get access to the network that way, um, that's a much easier way to go. Um, and so there are, we see an awful lot of social engineering tech, uh, uh, attacks that are basically emails that, uh, try to get the employee to do something, either enter the, enter the credentials, provide some type of information or wire funds someplace that they're not to. And they're very sophisticated. They, they will do reconnaissance on the type of employee that, uh, that they are, what their background is. They'll try to establish some type of trust relationship or develop an emotional trigger to get them to click on that link or enter that information so they can start their attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, invariably something's going to happen at some point in time. And one of the key uh, issues that well numbers you shared with me is that the cost for every data breach is in the region of $4 million. That's a massive number. It, it is. And that's globally. And so the average cost for uh, an attack within the United States is about $9 million. Um, and of course for smaller companies, the, the cost may be smaller, um, but small to medium-sized businesses are more vulnerable in many ways than a large company would be um, because of that cost. And so one statistic that's out there is that uh, 60% of 
small businesses that signif- uh, experience a significant cyber incident go out of business within six months. I mean, that's really uh, kind of bone chilling because it's not an IT problem. It's like an, an existential uh, concern for these small businesses. So they do ha- have to do something to protect their information. Mm-hmm. And you were also sharing with me that the uh, the amount of cyber cream has gone up. Cyber crime, rather cyber cream, would be nice if it was cyber cream, uh, but <laughs> but cyber crime has gone up six hundred percent in the last twenty four months. I mean, it seems to be this is getting worse. Yeah, uh, it really has escalated uh, enormously over the pandemic. Uh, I think because of a couple of uh, cons- things that happened was. Uh, suddenly there's a large group of uh, employees that were working from home. The landscape changed significantly. Um, At the same time, um, hackers also had that that time on their hands as well. And so they they refined their uh, attack techniques uh, on top of that to take advantage of that that expanding landscape. Um, And then there's also more sophisticated tools that are out there as well, um, as opposed to like having to visit each network individually there's a lot of tools that are uh, out there uh, commonly available on the uh, dark web that they can just download, use. And so there's a lot more people that can get involved in these um, uh, scanning and, and hacking techniques without a lot of technical knowledge. They just have to be able to find the right tools and start uh, start their attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens here? I mean, in terms of uh, insurance and the premiums that you might be able, that you would have to pay if you were you know, the subject of a cybercrime event. Like, what is the consequence of a cybercrime event in the context of insurance? So insurance plays a role in in any um, sound cybersecurity strategy because – um, no matter what you do from a cybersecurity side, there's all you're not going to eliminate risk. You can reduce it, but there's always been a chance that a major cyber event occurs, and you're going to need that insurance component to cover those uh, legal and uh, uh, remediation costs. Um, but because of the spike that has you know happened over the past couple of years, um, the claims have also skyrocketed. The premiums are going up, um, and and that's where we're looking at. Um, developing technology that allows insurance to um, assess what the risk is of a network more accurately and and then adjust those rates accordingly. So like if a company uh, has all the different technologies in place, they have a good um, employee training program, they're doing all the right things. And we can actually look at that, you know, at the different levels within a system um, and understand what their risk is. Um, they get rewarded for having better rates and a more effective insurance. And insurance is also important to have because they have uh, resources that if something does happen, for example, if it, it triggers the insurance, they have uh, incident response companies that are on, uh, on, you know, on the Rolodex. They have pre-existing arrangements. They have reach coaches to kind of walk uh, attorneys through these different things that they might have to be considering if they have a major event. Um, and so they have a lot of things that are kind of ready to go that if the, there is a breach occurred beyond just making payment. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of risk, like how does a business figure that out? Because you keep talking about like, well, it's about it's risk, right? And then it's, it becomes a legal issue. Um, and therefore, you need, there's a consequence in terms of the insurance and the premiums that you pay. So if it's all about risk and understanding your security posture, for instance, like where the hell do you start? Well, that 
the worst thing that, that a company can do is do nothing and just hope it doesn't happen because it's going to happen. Um, and so a lot of times if they are just starting out, we call it basically a cybersecurity journey. It's not going to be, you know, uh, install one piece of equipment and you're done. There's a lot of different uh, pillars that go into an effective uh, cybersecurity program. First thing an organization would want to do is have an assessment done and have either someone come in, look at their system, look at their program and give them, this is what your your risks are. And these are the steps that you need to take to reduce that risk. Um, you can also do a, a, smaller companies can do a self-assessment. It's not as thorough as having a third party come in and do it. But that's the first thing that they would do. You can't fix something if you don't know what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just uh, searching for some stats here. I found some interesting ones. Like apparently this, uh, this is a $6 trillion problem. Um, and it's a government uh, report from the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center. Um, mm-hmm. And they're sharing a whole bunch of stats there. I'm curious, what role does the government play in this? Because, like, if you if if you're talking to Matt Brown, like my point of view is like, well, the FBI has got to have some hardcore technology, <laughs> you know, like that that Microsoft doesn't even have because you know it's the it's the CIA and FBI. Like, surely they are more prepared than anyone to develop technology that's super proprietary and that no one has their hands on. Um, and and it's interesting also to think about this, like if you think about the role of a small business in the backbone of the economy, surely there's an interest from the government in protecting the interests of these businesses, isn't there? Or securing like partnerships with the likes of whoever it is to provide a better security uh, service to small businesses so that they don't wind up becoming victims and so that they don't have an existential problem in terms of like, well, if <laughs> most of you are going to die if you have an event happening. So surely there's an interest in from a, from a government perspective in solving this problem or working with the private sector to solve this problem in a more mature way. Um, in, in the United States, the government has provided uh, a lot of guidance of what businesses should do. Um, Unless it's in a regulated industry, though, it's it's voluntary. Um, they have not prescribed uh, that small businesses must do these certain things. Um, but there are more laws that are coming along, uh, especially at the state level, that if uh, certain types of information is compromised, there is a reporting requirement um, that, uh, you know, example, if a company loses personally identifiable information of their customers, they're required to notify them, um, which leads to a lot of this cost and uh, reputational damage to a, a client. Um, so there's uh, the, the government does provide some guidance, um, but only in the regulated industries, like if you're a defense contractor or if you're a, a part of critical infrastructure, like a utility or part of the uh, um, uh, food, biz- uh, food agricultural chain that's regulated, um, then the government has more oversight in, in those types of businesses. But for the vast majority of the small, uh, the medium-sized businesses, it's probably more of a guidance type of uh, effort from the government. Mm-hmm. I had uh, Peter Newell on the show. He's a U.S. or retired U.S. Army uh, Navy SEAL. Um, and he was basically responsible for uh, something called the REF or the Rapid equipping force so he he was sitting on like billions of budgets and he put that budget to work in terms of innovation around like you know um logistics on the ground and just a whole bunch of things around like how you mobilize the u.s military and so on and so forth in a war zone 
um, fascinating guy to talk to. Um, and so what he's doing now, now he's retired, um, is he's actually um, facilitating relationships between innovative startups and then the uh, public sector institutions like the FBI, the CIA, etc. Uh, I'm curious to to get your view. How much collaboration is there between the startup ecosystem solving things like, you know, new forms of password encryption or whatever the case might be, or protocols development around cybersecurity, um, and then the government agencies like the FBI? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, in the past 30 years or so, there's been a recognition that private industry is really the, the you know, the hub of innovation, uh, you know, uh, the government um, is has a lot of resources uh, to develop certain technologies, but uh, private industry, there's so many ideas out there that are, are uh, technologies that are just starting out might be at the seed level. Um, and there have been partnerships that have been developed uh, between the U.S. government and, and these, uh, the startup community. Uh, one organization that comes to mind is Incutel, uh, which is a quasi-government uh, organization that was set up between the, uh, the intelligence community to um, provide support for new technologies that may be of interest to the U.S. government. And so they have a, uh, an incubator program. They have um, a- annual uh, trade shows as far as being able to demonstrate these different technologies to government reps that say, oh, this may solve the problem that we've, we've been struggling with. So there is a partnership that's uh, been ongoing for years in uh, it's mutually beneficial because it gives government access to technologies that they might not have been able to develop, you know, because there's a lot of these bright minds out there. And then also the government uh, provides resources to help those companies grow and start up. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jonathan, just to change gears for a moment, uh, cybersecurity is competitive. Like if I, I went to a conference in New York, cybersecurity, in fact, <laughs> at the Jasper Center in New York, there was a massive cybersecurity event cyber technology i think it was called 2022 um and seems to me there's a lot of competition in this category around cyber uh you know cyber crime and and cyber security how have you been able to break through the noise of that because you know like i get the fbi link i think it's a great thing to include in the story of what you're doing but how have you been able to to really break through and and get traction as a startup in the space Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers.
I think one of the things that's been fortuitous is just maybe uh, through my experiences of talking to different people, developing an understanding of where I could solve the, uh, the, the problem that I felt like I could bring most value to that, that fight. And that really has been developing the technology to uh, identify risk and measure it for the cyber insurance side. It's a little bit different than the rest of the cybersecurity tools that are out there. Um, and, you know, that's a very competitive space because, um, you know, there's probably two to 3,000 security vendors. There's a lot of uh, consolidation going on. That, that space is going to be competitive for a long time. I think that just shows that there is a lot of, um, you know, this problem's not going away. Um, and everyone's trying to figure out different ways to, to solve the issue. Um, no one technology or service is going to solve it for a company. And that's where it becomes difficult for these small businesses is under having that expertise to say, I need this stack of different solutions to secure my network. And to know that to do that, you have to be a security expert. And that's the struggle that small businesses have is they're focused on their core business operations, trying to be successful there. Now they're saying, you're telling me I have to be a security expert over here as well, just to keep stay in business. And I think that's the one thing that um, a lot of security vendors are looking at. How can we more effectively uh, help the small to medium-sized businesses? Mm -hmm. um, so relationships are obviously really important uh, in general. How have you been working with relationships either through the FBI or through your private network, through your startup ecosystem there in, in, uh, in Texas to grow Born? Um, I I can't say it's really been a systematic approach. Uh, it's, uh, I think a lot of times it's fortuitous and just, uh, uh, every time I talk to somebody, um, I, I learn something new and it gives me a new perspective. Coming out of government after, you know, uh, 20 plus years, you have a certain perspective and moving into private industry, there's a different problem set, different environments you have to operate in. And so, uh, we moved from Washington DC down to Texas during the, the, the pandemic. So I really had to kind of recreate my whole uh, network during COVID, which is pretty difficult to do. It's hard to make a relationship, you know, strictly over teams, uh, especially in those early days. I think people are more accepting of it uh, nowadays. Um, but that's one of the things I always strive to do is like, you know, meet people in person if possible and just kind of develop those relationships. Because it's not going to be just one uh, chat session that you have and you're like, oh, you know, this is a great guy. I trust him. Uh, it, it takes time to do that and develop a network. So, but this is the ecosystem then that's important to discuss, isn't it? Because the reason why I do these series is because essentially each state, from my experience anyway, it's like a different country. It's not like one U.S. Yes, it's the USA, but really it's a different ecosystem, different types of uh, capital in terms of volume and size and liquidity, different types of startups. Interestingly, in Texas, a lot of uh, most of the startups there are actually in this med tech, biopharma, health tech space. Why? Probably because of the University of Texas. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. but it's an observation, isn't it? And and so there's a there's a contributing set of influences that drives the ability of a startup to scale. And in Texas, it's different to Colorado. Colorado is different to Cali, to New York, etc. Um, curious to get your experience, uh, Jonathan. What role has the ecosystem of Texas played uh, in your ability to scale born? Um, I think it's access to people um, where uh, I think that what I've most gotten out of it is just being able to talk to people directly and, and have that 
relationship and get their perspective and, um, you know, to have that trust relationship where they're, they're willing to help you. Um, it's interesting, though. I, I think a lot of founders, uh, you know, I'll reach out to them across the U.S. just to get, you know, see if I can develop a relationship, get some of their, their feedback and perspective. And a lot of times, you know, um, the relationship doesn't develop, but other times there have been people like whether it's in Florida, Georgia, California that I've never met in person, but have been tremendously helpful. So it's it's kind of changed the dynamic a little bit where, you know, I think before the pandemic, you're kind of restricted as far as, you know, driving distance, as far as who you could really uh, develop these relationships with. And now it's, it's whoever you, you kind of just kind of can develop that cadence with um, uh, and people that are willing to uh, take the time out and help you out. And I, thought, I think a lot of times founders, you know, they've gone through this journey. They understand the struggles that, you know, they might be six months, 12 months ahead of you. Um, but I really have always appreciated those people are willing to just take a, a, a breather and just kind of turn around and, and help me out and just provide a little bit of experience that they've learned. Mm -hmm. What's been, uh, what surprised you about moving from the FBI into the private sector as a, as advisor, almost like a, a custodian of small, medium size, you know, cyber crime, if you like, and protecting them uh, against all these incredible amounts of threats. Like what has surprised you in that transition? Because if you spent 20 years in the, in the public sector, it's very different to being the head of a startup, you know, heading into the private sector. What has surprised you in that transformation? Um, I think one thing that I, I didn't really appreciate when I was with government um, is there was never a, a lack of work to do. Um, like as far as new cases, new investigations, they would come in. Uh, it was not a challenge to, to find work and, and find something that was a good project to sink your, your teeth into. Um, on the other side, in private industry, getting the work and, you know, you talked about that crowd of cybersecurity vendors that, you know, it's just you're overwhelmed. People are overwhelmed with all these marketing messages. Getting the work and standing out from the crowd is probably uh, one of the biggest challenges um, because the market is so crowded. Mm. There's a an Israeli company. I was just looking for it now, uh, just to put it in perspective. But they they are like I'm actually going to have to find it while you're talking now. But they are the world's fastest growing startup ever. Uh huh. Like ever. Of all the startups that with Uber, Airbnb, blah, blah, like ever. Um, and they are an enterprise cybersecurity firm. Um, I'm going to, I don't want to mention any names that aren't true. I'll find them now. But basically what they've done is they've created um, essentially a enterprise grade security platform that, look, that basically allows you to connect all your different clouds. So if you're if you're a, a enterprise company, you're typically using more than one cloud provider. So you're using AWS, mm -hmm. Microsoft, etc. Um, and so they've been able to scale literally from like zero to some stratospheric number purely in the cybersecurity space in enterprise through their technology. Um, and I'm sharing that story because for me, I think it's indicative of just how liquid the space is. And I don't think like you know a lot of people on the ground who maybe don't live and breathe the space every day appreciate just how acute this issue is because it's never an issue until shit happens to you, mm -hmm. right? It's like, especially if you're a small business and it's like, no, Microsoft's got my back. And then, <laughs> then one day they don't, you know, or some, like I get phishing threats every day on my email, like, Hey, um, you know, click here. <laughs> um, and yeah. so someone's shit's going to happen at some point. 
Um, what's the prevailing perspective you want to leave startups with and small businesses with around the importance of, of, of cybersecurity and being um, as protected as possible? Yeah, so another thing that surprised me is um, when I talk to uh, clients or potential clients um, about cybersecurity, um, and I make the point that if they wait for a, a, an event to occur, a breach to occur, um, I or any other cybersecurity firm is going to be in a, a much less of a position to be able to help them. If their, their data is already locked up and they don't have any backups, they don't have a cybersecurity program in place, um, there's not much that can really be done to bring that uh, operation back online. That's why so many small businesses go out of business. Um, and it, it comes as a surprise to them. The, the best time to start working on cybersecurity is before something happens, but that's not when people are in that buy mode. They're, they'll buy anything when an incident occurs, but at that point, it's, it's too late. Um, and, and so that's why trying to get people to understand you got to make the investments early on before an event that uh, occurs to be most effective. Mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan, if you could uh, get into the Map Round Show time machine and go back to day one, like if you imagine all the things you've learned and the process of building this uh, this startup, what is uh, your what advice would you give yourself on day one about building Born? Um. Wow. That I think there's a lot of times where I think, man, if I know, knew this two years ago, I, I would have been uh, much further along. Um, I, I think one of the things is understanding how uh, fundraising and venture capital works uh, would uh, have accelerated my journey. Uh, and that's something that was completely new to me when I stepped out of the bureau. Amazing. Um, cool. So um, why small businesses? Like, why them? What, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I, I think um, one of the things that always resonated with me when I was the FBI is we'd give notifications to some of these smaller businesses that were doing really great things, but they just had never thought of cybersecurity. So the large organizations, they have a massive IT shop. They have a security staff. They're, they're okay. They, they have things set up. Um, but... You know, two thirds of cyber attacks focus on small to medium sized businesses that are unprepared. And so, you know, how do we help them prepare themselves and get better at, at you know, staying in business, really? And so I think that's just a real need um, to, to help these companies move through all this uh, cybersecurity threats. They're not going away. And if they don't do something, they are going to wind up uh, um, in the graveyard of some of these smaller businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jonathan, I think what you're doing is, is so important, not only for small businesses, uh, but I think for all of us, because I think every small business that doesn't die <laughs> is like a, is a good thing. I'm sure everybody yeah. would agree. Um, but um, yeah, wishing you, uh, well, firstly, congratulations on, on making the leap. I think it's a great thing. Um, and, uh, and all the success that you've had to date, I think it's, uh, it's really amazing. So wishing you all the best for the future. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it and, and enjoyed my time here. Anytime. Thanks, everyone.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients, Haiku, went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.